Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Let me say thank you as always to the musicians who have led us so bravely. Thank you, Jill, for filling in for Samuel today so he can have a much-deserved break. And I want to say thank you to our youth interns. This is their last uh, Sunday with us, and uh, they have been very brave to come from different parts of the country to help us in a very different kind of youth ministry this year. So I, I want this summer. So let's express our gratitude to them. <clears throat> And to their parents for letting them come. We appreciate that too. Exodus chapter 20, the end of the chapter, verses 22 and following is our text for study. And, uh, you know, you may be looking at this saying it's taken us 15 years to get through 20 chapters of Exodus. And there's 40 chapters total. It's gonna, I'm, never, I'm not going to live to the end of it. But the pace is going to pick up as we come into chapter 21 and the next 10 chapters because it's a collection of descriptive laws flowing out of these prescriptive laws of the Ten Commandments. And we'll explain more of that later, but don't lose heart. That means that this passage that we're about to study is very, very important uh, as it leads into the rest of this book, and it's very important for the mission of the church of Jesus Christ, which is our mission, of course. We need transformation, don't we? We need our world to be transformed. We need our country to be changed. And who is sufficient for such a task? What organization is capable of that kind of transformation? It may sound audacious, but Christians are the ones called to that task. And the church of Jesus Christ in particular, that is the organization that God has used throughout history to change villages and cities and nations and the world. I'm not alone in saying that. Great book by James Davison Hunter to change the world makes that very point. The church, when it is being the church, is a transformative power. It may be, it may be that we need more churches in Memphis, but it's more likely that we need more churches being the church in Memphis and around the country to accomplish this transformative agenda that God has for the world. And it's here. It's outlined in this Old Testament passage. I want you to look at it with me as we begin reading in verse 22 of Exodus 20, or you can just read along in your bulletin. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. 
but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you please descend on us and make your word clear to us. Lord Jesus, would you be the obvious center of what we study, what we think, and thereafter what we do. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving your word to us and the commission of the church of Jesus Christ. And I pray that for those here or joining in whatever means technology makes available, we pray that if there is one who does not know Christ in a personal way, your spirit would draw this one savingly to yourself, that they would not merely be saved for heaven, but that you would use them, use us to transform this world. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. Andy Crouch is a cultural scholar, cultural commentator. He's a former head of Christianity Today. He leads an organization now called Praxis. And just weeks into the COVID pandemic, he he wrote a piece that he has since uh, lectured on many times called Leading Beyond the Blizzard, uh, Why Every Organization is Now a Startup. He was addressing primarily nonprofit organizations, including churches. And he was saying, this, is, this pandemic that we're entering upon is not a blizzard. It is more like an ice age. A blizzard, you know, is when uh, a city uh, gets dumped on with a, a lot of snow, inches, feet even, and, and uh, they endure that for a, a time, and then they send the plows out when the snow stops, they send the snow plows out, they clear the streets, they move things to the side, and life gets back pretty well to normal. But an ice age is more permanent. He said, he said the pandemic, which most of us, including me, I thought, didn't you, that this would be a, a kind of blizzard. We would, it would be, we'd be in this kind of mess for a few weeks, and then we would move on. But it looks like it's going to be more devastating than that. It's worldwide. It's longer term. He said it's more like, it's, it's less like a blizzard, more like a, an ice age. And he compares it to the year 1816 when Mount Tamora in what is now Indonesia blew. It was a volcanic mountain. It, it erupted and it, and it filled the atmosphere with such a plume of ash. It stretched all the way from the east to Western Europe. And it brought what they call the endless summer, which was more like an endless winter. It was just every month for a year had frost in it. Crops failed. There was famine. There were all kinds of crises. And the people couldn't just say, you know, this is a a cold snap that we're going through. This is a long winter. Lasted over a year. And it was on the tail end of what they called the little ice age that had beset the world with falling temperatures for 300 years. He said, it's more like that. It's more like this longer winter than it is a short blizzard, which means that we can't, we have to think differently about our organizations. We can no longer think that, you you know, how can I just keep the same things going? Instead, we've got to ask more fundamental questions. We've got to take out a blank sheet of paper and ask, why do we exist? And what is essential to our mission? We were literally in the middle of strategic planning as a senior leadership team when the pandemic struck. 
And we did just that. We took our sheets of paper, our almost a book full of papers of, 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 of plans, and we set them aside and we took out a blank sheet and said, why do we exist? Why does the church of Jesus Christ, why does Second Presbyterian Church exist? And what is essential to our mission? Because that alone is what we must do. Well, we looked at the scriptures and we waited on God in prayer and we discovered something that wasn't really earth shattering. It's what we should have, we should have known and what we discovered is afresh. We were called back afresh to the church's essential mission, the essentials of the church, worship, outreach, and discipleship. Or what we say around here often as retelling in worship, reimagining in discipleship and repairing in outreach. I've arranged them differently in your outline today, not because worship is the lowest priority, but because I want it to be said last, that it might be said loudest, because it is the most important. But we start with discipleship, and we find all three of these in this passage. It is no accident that here, when God is saying, I want you to be my people in this world, I want you to bring the kingdom of God to bear on this world. You're a reconstituted nation. You're a church on the earth, and I want you to do these three things. I want you to disciple. I want you to reach out. I want you to worship. Discipleship comes in verse 22. When God says, the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Now, if you remember, or if you haven't joined our study yet, we, we, back in chapter 19, he's alluding to what happened in chapter 19. In chapter 19, God said to Moses, I want you to come up here on the mountain in Mount Sinai and I'm going to speak to you, and whatever I say to you, I want you to write down, and that's what you're going to give to the people as my word. And then he said to the people, you're going to bear witness to this. You're all going to know that I'm speaking to Moses so that he could write it down. Verses 16 and following, you see what he did. Moses goes up, and God starts speaking to him, and they heard him speaking. Thousands of people surrounding that mountain heard him speaking. It made such an impression, it lasted into the next generation. They heard him speaking. They saw the evidence of him speaking in the lightning and the clouds. They felt the undulation of the earth. They felt the rumble underneath them. They heard, they saw, they felt, they, they experienced the objective confirmation that God was speaking his word to Moses. And thereafter, they would know that whatever he wrote was the word of God. And, and when we studied that chapter, we said not only did they, he confirm it to Moses, he set Moses up as a standard, or the way he, he revealed himself to Moses, he set that up as a standard that would determine how every book would make it into the Bible thereafter. So somebody comes forward in the Old Testament, they say, I'm a prophet of God. And God said, here's the way you test them. You see if what they teach is in, in keeping with what has already been taught in Moses in the first five books. And if they check that box, they've got to check another big box. And that is they have to declare a prophecy or, or, or work a miracle that is confirmed in your eyes. That prophecy has to come true. 
And when, they, when their teaching is viewed to be consistent with what Moses has already taught, and when it's confirmed by a miracle witnessed by the community, then you roll up that scroll and you put it in the Ark of the Covenant, the Old Testament bindery, and that is the Word of God. It's in the Bible. And the New Testament was no different. I, I, what, they, what the apostles wrote had to be in keeping with what had been revealed thus far. God doesn't contradict himself. And then had to be confirmed by a miracle, the chief miracle being they witnessed the Lord Jesus raised to life from the dead. They had to be a witness to that. And so they wrote down what God told them and they put that in the Bible. So the Bible that we have, the books that we have in the Bible have been, they, they are consistent in their teaching. They don't contradict and they have been confirmed not just by the individual writers but objectively in the sight of many thousands who have borne witness to it with their own blood. And there's been no archaeological discovery, no study of an ancient manuscript, no historical revelation, no historical fact that has ultimately undermined the veracity of the Scripture. The Bible you hold in your hand can withhold, withstand any attack. Why has God confirmed it so? Not just so that he, can, he would make a mockery of all those who would sail their ship against it. But for your confirmation. So that you may know that the promises made are, are certain. So that you may know that when you stake your life on the word. When you allow the word to guide your life. He will lead your feet in pleasant places, not always happy places, not always, not full, not absent of trouble, but on the whole, the trajectory of your life can be considered one of blessing. That's the word of God. And it's the word of God, it's the Bible that must guide us through these difficult times as they must guide us in every time. What? we are experiencing in our culture is no different from what has ever been experienced and the and the and the crisis in in a large segments of our of our culture is due to the to a crisis of truth a crisis of truth and authority why should you base your life on this on this word why should you obey it? Not just because, not just because it is reliable and it's withstood the test of time and other attacks, but because God gives it to you as authority. God has spoken from heaven, caused his word to be written down so that you and I might know how to live. Carl Henry, who was arguably one of the greatest theologians of the modern era, has since gone, be, uh, gone to be with the Lord. He spent, he harnessed that, the, the spirit harnessed that brilliant mind of his to make this point over and over and over, that God from heaven has revealed his will in a written document to us called the Bible, and to live by its authority results in blessing. 
I don't make a habit of reading to you, but this is such a great quote. I've got to read it to you, an excerpt from his great book, God, Revelation, and Authority. What can can adequately explain the ongoing plunge of man's existence into endless crisis? Why is it that the magnificent civilizations fashioned by human endeavor throughout history have tumbled and collapsed one after another with apocalyptic suddenness? Is it not because ever since man's original fall and onward to the present, sin has plummeted human existence into an unbroken crisis of word and truth? A cosmic struggle between truth and falsehood, between good and evil, shadows the whole history of mankind. The Bible depicts it as a conflict between the authority of God and the claims of the evil one. Measured by the yardstick of God's holy purposes, all that man proudly designates as human culture is little but idolatry. The Lord Jesus gave his church a great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. Do you know the evil one has made the same great commission to his followers? The evil one has said to his followers, go into all the world and teach the nations everything that I have taught you. We must be discipled by the Lord Jesus, which means we must be taught by Scripture. We're not called to go into the world and make converts just to fill up pews. We are called to lead people to Christ into a personal relationship with Christ and then to say, now Christ calls, it demands that he be Lord of your life and that your life be conformed to the Scriptures. We disciple people in the Scriptures. You're not to be discipled by your culture. You're not to be discipled by Twitter. You're not to be discipled by news feeds. You're not to be discipled even by your your peers and their opinions. You're to be discipled by the word of God. And as disciples, we pledge ourselves to follow him, to follow his, his lead, his directions even if it means persecution or ostracism. So so what does it look like today in our confused day? It takes takes the Bible as God's yardstick, as as Henry calls it. We take it it as a yardstick, and we lay it across everything that we hear. We lay it across the opinions of our friends. We lay it across our own teaching. We lay the yardstick across the sermons you hear from this pulpit. You take God's yardstick, the Bible, and you lay it across news feeds of CNN and Fox and and the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and and the Huffington Post. And and you you take that yardstick and you lay it across the websites that that you consult, the Sierra Club or the NRA or Black Lives Matter or, or whatever other website or source of information you get, and you ask these questions. What does the Bible teach? What is true and what is false? What does the Bible teach about human sexuality? And what does the Bible teach about equity for all people created in his image? What does the Bible teach about just law, just law enforcement? What does the Bible teach about protecting the unborn and extending dignity to to the elderly? What does the Bible teach about 
caring for the poor? What does the Bible teach about working and resting? And what does the Bible teach about the environment? And this is true and that is false. And then these are areas over which the Bible's not clear and Christians may have disagreement. And even when we find things that are false, that are falsely said by one person or one source, we must, not re- we must not reject that person or cancel that person or hate that person or reject that person. We love even if they reject and cancel and hate us. Neither must we be surprised when we find truth spoken by unlikely subjects because As Francis Schaeffer, one of my predecessors at Covenant Church in St. Louis, used to say, all truth is God's truth. Nobody has invented truth. God is the source of truth, and and people stumble across truth all the time. And when when they speak truth, we affirm that. When they speak falsehood, we deny that, but we affirm or we deny in love. Take that yardstick and we apply it, apply it to every source, every candidate, every, every platform, every political party. We say what is true and what is false. That's what it means to be discipled in the word of God. And not only do we disciple as a, as a core mission of the church, not only is it, it is essential that we teach people God's word, hold them accountable to living it out, we reach out to others in the name of Christ and compel them to come to Christ. If they don't have a relationship with him, we say we, we, we beg you to come. Beg you to come into a relationship with, with Christ. But that work of outreach, that work of evangelism is not merely talking. It's not, it's not just changing people's ideas. It's not just capturing their thoughts. It is compelling them with the difference Christ makes in your life. Not showing them how good your example is, but allowing them to see the difference Christ makes in your life. Nobody's going to be convinced merely by your words. They need to be convinced that this truly is a transcendent. There's no other explanation for how this person could, could live the way they do except that they, something from heaven, something transcendent has happened to them. Where do we get that in the text? God says, I will cause my name to be remembered among you and you will be blessed. I will cause my name to be remembered among you and you will be blessed. Elsewhere, God says, and as you are blessed, the nations will look on you and they will be filled with wonder. They will say, what kind of nation has a God like that? Now, let's pick this apart a little bit. What does it mean? Well, the easiest part is, what does it mean to be blessed? It means to be prospered by God. That when you live life God's way, God will 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 bless you. It doesn't mean that life will be perfect. It, it, it's not health and wealth and prosperity in every situation, but the overall trajectory of your life will be, will be demonstrated to be blessing. Did you say, well, that, well that you said, uh, you're saying, no, I knew, I knew that salvation was by works all along. You're just saying that if I live the right way, God will bless me. No, well, well yes, that's right. I am saying that. But the source of your obedience is what you may be missing. 
The only reason that you and I ever obey is because Christ enables us. Christ calls us. He unites our lives to his. And as Paul said, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And I, and I don't just wait around for him, you know, I'm free to be disobedient until he takes over and makes me obedient. No, he will make you obedient. And part of the proof of whether or not you're a believer is that you are obedient. You're not obedient perfectly, but the, the trajectory of your life again, the pattern of your life is that you are obedient. In theology, we call that an instrumental condition, not a, not a meritorious condition, not, not that you obey and then God responds with merit and bless you, but rather when Christ conquers you, an instrument, an instrument of his sanctification is that he causes you to obey and lead you into blessing. That's exactly what he says here. I cause my name to be remembered in you and you will be blessed. So what kind of life What kind of life compels other people to give their lives to it? What kind of life would you and I need to live individually and corporately that would convince people that they should should leave their former way of life and give themselves totally to the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not just that you're you're happy occasionally and that you're, you're kind to those who are kind to you. It, it's certainly not that you love those who love you back and you hang out with those who befriend you. That Jesus said that's what the Pharisees do. That's what they did. They loved those who loved them first or loved them back. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, you'll, know, you'll have no part with me. The kind of obedience that conquers unbelief and compels people to give their life to Christ is extraordinary. In a word, Jesus defined it as love. Jesus said, here is the way the people will know that you are my disciples. Here's the way. Here is the way people will know that you belong to me the way you love one another. The way you love one another extraordinarily. You love people when they don't agree with you. You love people when they don't vote the way you do. You love people when they reject you. You love people when they persecute you. You love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and do good to them who persecute you. That's what Jesus said. It's extraordinary love. That's what gets the world's attention and it's what's not being seen everywhere, although it's being seen large portions of our city. It's, it's like this kind of love in 2000. I can't remember now, 2006 or early 2000s when that milk truck driver burst into the one-room schoolhouse in rural Pennsylvania, Charles Carl Roberts IV, and he opened fire on on that class of little girls. He killed five of them and he seriously wounded five more. It's an unspeakable 
tragedy. And he said the reason he did it was not only was he tormented in his conscience over the bad things he had done, but his, his own daughter had died nine years before and he was mad at God. He said he hated God and he was going to take it out on God by killing those little girls. Those Amish believers buried those little girls and the very same parents who buried their little girls one day before went to Charles Carl Roberts the fourth funeral service the next day and they waited around and they hugged his widow and his family members and they paid for the service That got the world's attention. The commentator in National Public Radio ran a, a documentary on it. The, the, the commentator said, what astounded us is that they went to that funeral. They paid for the expenses. And they said that the reason they did that, the reason they forgave, was so that they could go back to their farms and enter into the hard work of forgiving themselves. They, what, what does that to people? What kind of power would do that to people that they, would, that they would forgive their children's murderers? Only the gospel. Ordinary love is not going to win this culture. Extraordinary love is. Extraordinary love that crosses party lines and crosses racial lines and crosses socioeconomic lines and pursues those who hate, as Dr. King used to say. Light drives out darkness. Darkness doesn't drive out darkness. Hate doesn't drive out hate. Only love drives out hate. Church disciples, the church reaches out most importantly, the church of Jesus Christ worships. Everything flows from worship. Everything flows from worship. And everything, every law in the rest of this book going into, into Deuteronomy flows from worship. That's a contribution by our own Dr. Mary Wilson. And you can read three or 400 pages on this topic of, of, of worship driving the commands that follow, which are humanizing commands. That, that, that every, one of these, every one of these commands comes out of a response to grace. I led you out of Egypt. I've liberated you. Therefore, you shall have no other gods. You, shouldn't, you shall make no other idols because you're, you're not enslaved any longer. To make an idol is to be enslaved to something you can never satisfy. And in response to that grace then, you turn and you bless those made in my image. To worship drives everything. Everything begins with worship. I want to give you six very rapid points. It was four points in the in previous services, but uh, now it's gone to six. Six points, all beginning with H. It was going to be the four H, but now it's six H's. And uh, I'll, I'll give it to you in rapid succession. We'll be done in a couple of hours. It's, uh, here are the six words. Hear how humble, holy, 
him and humanitarian. These are the characteristics of our worship and they're all found in this, in this passage. Here, God is a, God is a, God meets us in places. God says, I want you to set aside a place and that's where you're going to worship. I want you to sanctify a place. It's what, it's what Gary so beautifully illustrated for us. I want you to mark out a place. That's what sacred means. It means marking out a boundary. You mark out a boundary. And I want, you to, I want you to designate that as a place where you may worship. And God is in the habit of using places and, and intersecting with them in such a way that he does a formative work in our lives. He, he, he may meet us in the woods. He may meet us on the, a river. He may meet us in a family situation. And that place there, thereafter where he has significantly formed us, that place becomes significant to us. Well, God has given us a sanctuary. Our forefathers marked out a space here. They built a sanctuary. And this is one place where you can schedule every week to come and be spiritually formed. You don't have to wait for it to happen in the woods or wait for it to happen anywhere. It's here. God has marked out this place which lifts by its, by its architecture, lifts our hearts up and communicates that God comes down. I really don't have to struggle or strain to make that point anymore, do I? Because COVID-19 has denied us a place. And, and you know the ones who have come back here, how even though it's not what we want it to be, it's, it's better than nothing. And this is not passing judgment on any still joining us online. You do what is prudent the way the Lord directs you. But we, we know now, the import, we feel the importance of places. God has given us this place in which he meets us because he loves us as human beings. He knows we're finite. He knows we need places, defined places in which he can meet us. So worship is defined by here and worship is defined by how. How is it to be done? God gives us directions in his word. God regulates worship by his word. He doesn't give us a lot of direction in scripture, but he gives us enough. And enough to say that uh, worship is not our own prejudices and worship is not according to our own taste. Worship is, is generally guided by God's word. And in, in deference to our brothers and sisters, God's word directs our worship. We, say, we could say it this way, just as each of us has a love language, God has a love language and he says, this is the way I want you to worship me. I want you to look at the pattern of worship in scripture and I want you to imitate that. Sometimes it'll make you feel goofy. Sometimes it means you lift up your hands. Sometimes it means kneeling. Sometimes it means singing when you're allowed and even if you don't feel like it and it means repeating your faith out loud. It means gathering in person. God's, and then uh, worship is, is to be humble. He says, pick up these stones and stack them on one another. Don't, don't carve them. Just pick them up as created objects. Place them on top of one another. And remember that you are hum you've been created. That no one can come haughtily before the Lord in any situation because you can't look anywhere without seeing what God has made through Christ. Worship is here. Worship is determined in its how by God's word. It's, it's conducted by humble people. It's a desire to be holy. We come here to be formed. 
We don't come here commending ourselves. We don't come here determining that no matter what is said or experienced, we're going to remain the same. But out of love for a holy God, we say, I want to be just like you. He said, don't come to my altar in nakedness as the pagan religions and the pagan priests do. You come in a holy fashion to me. It's to be about him. It's to be about Christ. Where do I get that? In these sacrifices, these, these blood sacrifices, they're all preparation for the, the coming of the last lamb, the precious blood of Christ, more precious than silver or gold, that God would that God would spill to make atonement for us. And not just atonement, but the, not just burnt sacrifices, but peace offerings too. That God has not only atoned for our sins, he, he, makes, he sits down with us in peace, has a meal with us, which we regularly celebrate. And finally, worship is to be humanitarian. Again, what Mary and others have taught us that immediately upon God's revealing himself to his people and calling them to worship, they were to turn from that worship and ask, how may I imitate that grace to the least of these around me? How may I humanize them? How may I honor them? How may I serve them sacrificially? That's real worship, and it transforms the world. I could give you many examples of how God uses, has used the church and churches, even tiny churches, to transform villages and cities and nations in the world. But there's one this week that kept coming to my mind. It's one that I saw with my own eyes. In 2007, I went with a couple of hundred medical residents to Plovdiv, Bulgaria, and they conducted a medical clinic. I was the chaplain. They set up a medical clinic in a, in a church and, and people would come there for medical treatment and the doctors would share their faith with them and then they, would, they couldn't get out the door without going through me or some other chaplain and hearing the gospel again. And early on, we noticed that there were two elderly women who, who came in there every day and they listened to everything we said. They went station to station and they especially listened in on every conversation I, I had. The pastor finally explained, he said, you know what those, those women are doing? They're leaders in this church. They're making sure you get it right. They're making sure you say it right. He told me the history. In the late 1880s, an American Baptist missionary had gone there and, uh, and there no, no converted people. He led a group of people to Christ till he had a, 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 a catalytic group and he formed them into a church. And the first thing they did was build a sanctuary. Nobody would sell them any supplies in, uh, in Plovdiv. So Americans sent him the supplies by which he built the sanctuary. Board by board, they sent them to him. The whole sanctuary was built out of heart pine. And then he, he, so he taught them to worship. It's the very first thing he taught them. And then he discipled them out of God's word. And, and he taught them how to win their neighbors to Christ. And they filled up that church. When the Nazis came to Bulgaria and demanded that the, that the, the Gentile citizens round up the Jews and hand them over, they refused. 
Those Christians stood between the Jews and those Nazis. They'd been taught God's word to love their neighbor, and they said, you will not get our neighbors. You'll have to go through us to get our neighbors. They, they made sure that no Jew went outside his or her house without being accompanied by one of them. They outlasted Nazism. And then the Soviet Empire came along and the communists said, you may no longer preach Christ and you may no longer preach him from the pulpit. They ignored it. They continued preaching. You may not evangelize. They ignored him. They continued evangelizing. And so they sent a, a, a monitor to go to their worship service to try to intimidate them and to scare them. They set up a chair for him. They, they seated him. They brought him coffee and cookies. And they made sure that if he hadn't heard the gospel clearly enough in the sermon before he left the door, they made sure he heard it again. Nazism was gone. Communism was gone. And all the other isms that they had endured, they were gone. That church was still there. And that church said, you know what we need to do to reach our neighbors for Christ? Let's bring medical residents from America. Let's set up a clinic here and let's treat their bodies in the name of Jesus and explain to them the gospel while they're doing it. That's the way the world is transformed by the church being the church. No matter what this pandemic does, no matter what happens in the election, no matter what happens in the crisis, crises and the disruptions and the battles that occur in our culture, we will continue to do the same in the name of Christ, no matter the ostracism, the persecution, the unpopularity of it. We will worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We will reach out in the name of Christ with the gospel and we will disciple one another in God's word. To live, to live counterculturally and in extraordinary sacrificial love. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, who are we for this task? We are nothing. We beg you, Lord, to continue to humble us. Remind us this is not our church. These are not our lives. This is not our stuff. We are yours. We pray that you would make us tools individually and corporately that come readily to your hand by which you, for your namesake alone, transform Memphis, our nation, our world, by bringing the kingdom of God to bear in an unmistakable way the loving and tender mercies of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, God's people said together, amen.